We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Joining me for this episode is David Tenney. He is the High Performance Director for the Orlando Magic in the NBA and the former High Performance Director with the Seattle Sounders in the MLS for nine seasons there. He has done a lot in the soccer coaching community and we talk about his views on certain aspects of the game, MLS combines, subjective, objective, staff dynamics, and what soccer environments can learn from the NBA. Some great insight there. So as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts at Gary Kernin on Twitter, at Gary Kernin on Instagram. Check out Techni Football, the training app for individual players, teams, and clubs. Players can train on their own when and where they want while coaches can track their progress. Download the Techni Football app for a free trial or go to technifootball.com and you can use the promo code MSC2019 for 10% off. Here's David. Enjoy. David, thanks so much for joining me this morning on the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. Really excited to have you on. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Uh, So this podcast, we're going to focus on science and soccer and just trying to bridge the gap for coaches like me in my opinion you use social media really 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 well and you challenge coaches to go a little bit further and deeper with their thinking but at the same time you talk to everyone with a great level of patience and respect so i wanted to pick a few hot topics on social media and get your thoughts on it and try and help coaches like myself understand them a little bit more Okay. Not to throw a grenade at you, but Uh-oh. just yeah, easy one to start with. Subjective versus objective with the debate and, and obviously Raymond Verheyen putting his thoughts across a, a while ago. What's your thoughts on subjective thinking having almost zero place in the game? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the first thing when I think about subjective thinking a lot is I have... Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think about intuitive people. You know, to me, that's kind of the the subjectivity of you know what what I'm looking at, what I what I think I'm looking at, and I and I almost feel like there's there's a nature where isn't it's some level where the coach interacts with the game or the players. Like there is a subjective intuitive feel. Right? If I if I watch my team play during the week, or I watch my athletes play during the week, and and you know I might get some objective markers from where they are. Um, and that could be technical, that could be physical, um, whatever that is. And then I have to create a session for them. So it's hard for me to think that, you know, kind of that subjective view, um, that in, intuitive view of what might be next that often comes from kind of experiential learning. It, you know, to me, there's, there's gotta be some validity around that, right? Like, uh, that, that would seem to to make sense because we we can look at what's happening objectively in the game, but ultimately it comes down to the decisions we have to make to help those athletes over the week. And you know, I feel like there's got to be a 
subjective view. Something popped up on my Facebook a couple weeks ago that, that a, 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 a quote from uh, Einstein that I had uh, forgotten that I that I put it up there, and it was about you know Einstein's uh, quote about intuition versus rational, and I and I thought it was uh, fascinating because I I feel like that's I, I feel like yes I I the objective and you know and yes but I think we can never throw away the intuitive piece, right? So Albert Einstein said, the intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We've created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. And I love that quote, you know, because I think it's it's so, you know, so valid. And, and it's even, you know, here in the NBA, I see that with, uh, you know, sometimes with the therapists that we put around our athletes, and, you know, we try to be very, very research-based and very scientific. And everything we do is kind of, you know, backed by evidence. Having said that, there are you know, some of the very, very best therapists in the world put their hands on these athletes and they have an intuitive feel what those athletes need. And that's that's a very real thing. So yeah, I think that's kind of the viewpoint I bring to that. Yeah, like for me, I'm, I would consider myself very much an intuitive coach. And then, but I, obviously I want to improve. And, and if there's a school of thinking that that's wrong, I want to look deeper into it. But I, I feel that it harms the coaching community if you're if you're promoting a message that intuition has little or no value because a lot of the the, the best experiences the things that I've learned from come through failure and I, I guess just the way we're programmed so if we if we remove the ability to want to try things and and fail then surely we're setting up young coaches for failure in the long term by thinking they're going along a path that is not going to bring success or even enjoyment yeah yeah, no, I agree. Next one, injury prevention. This is one for myself where I, I, I'm really, really struggle to understand it, that sports science, obviously it's not new, but do you think it's now being branded or do you think it's being packaged as as injury prevention too much in soccer with the technology and the load management? Um. Yeah, no, I, th- I think so. And I think it's kind of normal. I mean, I think that, we have maybe it goes back to the subjective, you know, subjective objective science. You can actually objectively view what's really happening in the games. Once you once you can objectively view how much you know athletes are running, sprinting, um, different you know kind of intense periods of workload. Sometimes you try to manage them when maybe you didn't try to manage those things. You didn't have that information. You know, so. The objectivity sometimes can kind of get in the way of your decision-making process. Um, you know, I think you know what's what's the saying is you know it's, there's always kind of a overreaction in the near term and an underreaction in the long term. And you know, are we in this period where we're reacting to some of the the data that we're collecting, or we're over over concerned? And you know, that's what it goes back to. You bought you brought Tony Stridwick. Some of the talks he's done, you know, he he has the talk on kind of high performance at you know at this time in Manchester United, which which I I absolutely love, you know, and he, and he kind of talks about how do we use these tools to really push these athletes to to be better and to be more resilient. And I think that's when you know kind of sports science and, and injury prevention is utilized the best. And how do we prepare these guys for the most intense moments of the game, and and also prepare our athletes um, for where the sport is going, you know, because the sport is continuing to dynamic and be more intense and um, more games and less rest and can't just do less. There have to be moments when they do more to create some 
the kind of resiliency. And, and if you look at all the, having players adapt to chronically high loads is the most protective of injury. You know, now, now how you get to that chronic high load, I think is that's where the, you know, the, the magic happens, I guess. That's, you know, that's where the trick is moving your athletes to a space where they can all tolerate chronically high loads. And I think that's probably your best form. Just on that, I read an interview that you did. This was a few years ago when you were with Seattle and, and you were talking about how two games a week, which we as coaches are just programmed to complain about match <laughs> schedules, but you were saying that it actually helped the players. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I always found you know, if, if you get a group that's pretty resilient and you actually have three rest days between, they, they can do that for, you know, they, most most players that can then you've taught you've worked in the zone where they can tolerate chronic loads and you have three days rest that's that's very very manageable i think now there will always be a couple athletes that may respond and to me that's where it goes back to the sports science is you know looking within those games and who is kind of out of their normal variability at times in terms of, of workload and then you can kind of make some adjustments from there if you to rotate if you've got to you know change your lineups or change what you do you know I, I do find that if you can get athletes through these periods where they have these two games a week then uh then you will build in like a natural injury resilience in them just finishing up on on injury prevention when we're talking about load like lo load per se is not the only factor at, in play whenever an athlete gets injured i'm correct there yeah <laughs> so yeah yeah, 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 yeah so sure. what other factors are in play and and how can we get more awareness for it, and and why don't we talk as much about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, the, the world you know, my, most relevant for me now. Um, what we live in the NBA is, uh, you know, the, the young athletes, and you have young athletes that come in, and it may still be a, a load issue, but the, the actuality is that they might not be strong enough yet. They might not be developed enough yet to to meet the most intense demands. They might be underpowered, and as they fatigue, they lose their stability, and losing their stability, and they're more likely to have a knee injury. Um, and so, so it, you know, in some ways, it is load, but I think it's it's bigger picture. It's taking a a young kid who might not be strong enough, fit enough, move well enough, um, and then kind of put the right things in place over a one, two, or three year period where they they get to where they need to be. And so then I think it's the whatever practitioner it might be, whether it's a coach or strength coach or therapist or, you know, whatever. It's about, you know, having a system in place around the athletes that can view that athlete as are they strong enough? Do they move well enough? Um, do they have previous injuries? You know, the, the biggest indicator of injury is previous injury. So, you know, really knowing what your athletes have been through before they get to you is really critical. And then spending some time thinking about if they were injured before, why potentially did they get injured before? And you know, kind of put the right things in place around them, but then always understanding that this is a—it's always a long-term process. You know, you might have to kind of guide through a year that they're going to have higher injury risk. What you put in place over two months, four months, six months to try to get them to be stronger, move better, uh, be more conditioned. This might be a stupid question, but when you look at the teams, um, and when you put on the TV today, and you you see Chelsea, and you you see Arsenal, Manchester United, Liverpool. And the tempo of the game, how much, how much risk is there in in their world of dealing with sports science and results and tactics? Because it's it's a word that we rarely rarely use. I feel, and because of that, 
again awareness kind of drops like when you're in charge of those big big clubs and you're charged at a league that you want to play at a certain intensity is there a is there a massive risk week or week I mean, obviously, I'm not over there, but yeah, I, I'm sure there is. I think the the issue that you have in those leagues is the the pressure to win right now, right? So you you uh, are more likely to take risks. Um, anyway, and when it goes around coaches as well, you're less likely to tell a coach you can't have a guy because he might get injured. Um, if you know, if you have a game that's really critical to the club, to the coach's career, um, and, and to the player as well. I mean, what I find in those instances, I mean, you know, again, coming back to my experience in the NBA is that um, the more the more money that the athletes are making, um, the more cautious though they want to be. So, so as you know, commissioners, we're kind of towing the line between knowing that you know, the athletes don't necessarily want to risk injury because they're you know they're they're you know, on these these large wages and um, they're kind of almost a brand unto themselves. The coach is under pressure because if they don't win, then you know they're they're obviously in that environment. Clubs will pull the trigger on on making moves there faster than they did ten years ago. Um, and then you're collecting data and seeing this game get faster, more intense, you know, and, and then you've you kind of got to make a decision. Everyone's kind of best interest at stake and then trying to put forward what you think the best decision might be. Again, like it's just not as easy as just purely, you know, subjective versus objective. There's mm. such a complex system that goes around. Like, What does this athlete think? What, is, what you know, in my role, when I get to know most of these athletes' ages, agents, what does the agent think? What does the coach think? What does management think? What's the pressure on the coach? Where's the team at? And then trying to take kind of that complex system and make the right decision for each individual athlete, um, each individual day. So. All right, a couple of good ones for you now. Physical testing at the MLS Combine. Every January, yep. there's a good Twitter storm about it. And yeah. I really liked your insight on it this past time. Can you expand on on your response to people that saying like, "Why are you Why are you testing, running, jumping?" Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, inevitably, there's a stream of tweets, post MLS Combine every year of the how useless combine testing is, and it's typical American, and all American cares about is, is athleticism. And the reality is, is that most of the tests these guys are all doing if they were in a under 18 or 19 european club they would be doing the same testing they'd be doing 30 meter sprint tests be doing some jumping they're doing some lateral agility testing it's very normal testing having been in the mls setting i don't really think the clubs overweight the value of those testing results um yeah having set through numerous discussions around uh, draft picks. I mean, the, you know, I can say that they, they may have a factor at times that may be looking at, hey, we want to get a backup wing back. Um, we're looking at these two guys, which, ones, which, which one might be faster or, or better athlete. Um, and just having that context around athleticism when you're kind of looking at you know, kind of some some depth player that you might get out of the draft, which I think is very normal and it's it's useful. Inevitably, it also goes back to you know, Javi uh, didn't have to be faster, and yes, it didn't have to be fast, and this is what's wrong with America. Um, it's nothing that they, they don't do in the youth academies in Europe, and I think it gives teams a little bit of contextual information. Let's be honest, most of the players that come out of the draft are all squad players, depth players. 
So um, it, it just gives a little bit of context as they're kind of trying to make comparisons over who might have a little bit more athleticism, but it is not, you know, kind of the, this is how Americans view the game that I think it gets painted on social media. Yeah, Twitter not exactly designed for context, <laughs> but even even that there, like you also along those lines, you you jumped in about people tweeting about the the Bielsa clip with everyone's yes, all the yes, Leeds yes. players, and and I do that myself. I think that's great. And the week before it, I would have yes. thought it was great about the Pirlo or a Raquel May quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, and that's exactly right. Is that is that the same people that I found were killing you know, that MLS was doing a uh, physical testing combine protocol were also the ones that were raving about the, you know, kind of that feat of, okay, there is a mental side, this mental, but also physical intensity workload that Bielsa's uh, Leeds team showed as they were in defensive transition. I mean, those guys looked fast and explosive and they all ran back and, you know, it was a great feat of athleticism you saw in that film and, you know, and everyone kind of jumped at how great, what a great coach Bielsa was. And yeah, there's also really athletic guys running back at the same time. Yeah, so, <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, the, that same group that both of those were also the ones tweeting about how uh, Rick Helmick could not care less about wearing a GPS on his back and nor should he. And that's what's wrong with the game. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, like I said, I think I saw Rick Helmick play four times live for Boca and he played ran the least of, you know, Riquelme and Palermo in those days, both probably ran the least of any two players that I've ever seen in any professional game ever. But they didn't need to. However, they had seven players who played behind them who ran like frickin' dogs to cover for them. And I think that's the part that's sometimes missing. Yeah, you can have a, you can have one or two players in your team that you may have the role where they don't actually have to run that much in the modern game, but but someone has to run. And so... Um, in the in defensive transition, if two guys are not going to you know do the, carry the workload, well then it just means you have to have players behind them that can cover those workloads. And uh, you know, and that Boca team was amazing. Cause, I mean, Palacios, uh, Palermo up top, and then uh, Riquelme behind, and then you had seven guys that work as hard as any group of seven guys I've ever seen in that Boca team. So uh, again, like it, it's nice to you know, I totally understand what um, Riquelme's viewpoint wasn't that but but again it goes back to context yeah yes that that player was so had such good technique and such good vision and opened up the game so easily and he didn't have to run and he's probably right he didn't need to wear gps because it really didn't make any it would not have mattered um, if you evaluated his game on a game game basis yeah i mean it's it's so true and I don't think any coach would disagree with you on social media, but the way social media works, it's almost an impossible platform to get that context through. The way we present information, absorb, consume it. Was there any inspiration behind that frustration with you know starting the the Seattle Science Conference and just exposing people to more? For sure, for sure. The Seattle Conference also started because uh, being on the West Coast and getting to know some of the West Coast college coaches and strength coaches, um, within about a week span, I had um, a pretty big men's program out in the West Coast. Their strength coach reaches out to me and says, uh, hey, you know, I really like the stuff you're doing. Can I, uh, can I come and talk to you? 
my coaching staff, like the soccer coaches, they're, they're, they're kind of clueless. Like they just, they just don't get it. You know, like I'm in the off season. I got these guys finally now, and I can finally work on speed, work on power, work on athleticism. And all they do, the coaches complain is that they can't do any sessions because I'm making them sore. Like they just don't get, I have to work on speed and power in this time of the year because I'm not going to be able to do any other year. And then literally like five days later, the head coach of the team calls me and says, uh, can we come up and meet with you and talk to you and just see how you're doing things? Because we have this strength coach. He just doesn't get it. Like he's, he's lifting these guys and they can't move. We have to adjust all of our training sessions and like how he sees what guys should be doing in the off season and how we see it are just totally different. And, uh, and both sides weren't really seeing what the other side was seeing. So I kind of thought, you know, I, I should have an event where we just have both these groups in the same room at the same time. Mm. And let's just talk about it. And it became more of like a sports science driven thing. And, you know, and obviously since then, the the environment has changed. And it's, uh, you know, I think you're having more more people, we call it, say, in the athletic performance side, that understand the sport, that are more sports science driven than you did maybe when that event started like eight, nine years ago. So it's come a long ways, but it's, uh, you know, I think that that was kind of the genesis of it is how do we, I think it's embracing the idea that this is a very interdisciplinary rather than multidisciplinary. It's a very interdisciplinary uh, arena that we live in. And if we can embrace uh, people that understand sports science, people that understand strength and conditioning, people understand coaching methodology, people that understand uh, skill acquisition if we can bring them all in the same room we can do a lot of good stuff and learn from each other and, and the problem is you know most people go to these symposiums where they they surround themselves with like-minded people and that just reinforces you know kind of all the all those all those opinions we were talking about on twitter like that just reinforces those yeah that that communication piece is obviously it's massive for a for an snc coach um credibility i was talking to to megan young about this yesterday she was saying how how much you've inspired her as a non-soccer player to get through and break into the soccer industry and with your career in soccer it was a little bit easier how challenging is it with basketball um it it is a challenge and I i think you just have to know i think the most important part is just to understand and know your know what you don't know. I think and acknowledge what you don't know. What I try to engage in the staff here about is do we have a methodology? How do we view skill acquisition? How are athletes uh, fatiguing? You know, who's not able to tolerate the load of the season? And you know, and obviously once once it comes to the basketball side here, like that's that's not. That's not my place, which is, you know, and obviously that's very different because I kind of came to MLS as a prior soccer coach moving into the space um, in sports science, you know, strength conditioning, performance management. Um, so I had been overseas and seen all the top teams in, in, the, in the world train overseas and, you know, had some coaching education from Europe. And so, yeah, I, there was some credibility with them that I had. And so, you know, to me, it's just kind of like learning how to stay in your lane and acknowledge what you know and what you don't know and always and also constantly strive to learn the game better as well and i think that's that's a process into itself because again it doesn't matter what sport it is whether it's football soccer whether it's basketball it's the uh what teams are doing now is different than it was three years ago so 
you know, you kind of have to stay on top of how teams are working and training, and uh, especially at the highest level, at the highest level, it's changing so fast. What NBA teams are doing is is changing so fast. What you know, Premier League teams are doing is changing as well. So it's uh, it's up to us to kind of stay on top of that, acknowledge what you know, and acknowledge what you don't know. I find it fascinating that the guys that are coming in, like the amount of information, the knowledge, like we're, we're as coaches, we're we're somewhat blinded by intelligence where we're like, wow, this this could make me, but the, the intelligence gets you the job. But then, you know, yeah. after two weeks, the com- the communication is going to make or break whether it's successful or not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's happening at the same time is that across the board, it doesn't matter what, you know, what sport the staffs are getting bigger as well. Mm. You know, that's kind of, that's, so you have more interactions, you have more interactions, you have more relationships, there's more, there's more places things can go wrong. And, you know, my, my particular role right now in Orlando with the NBA is having, you know, a, we essentially have head coach, president, GM, four assistant coaches, four young video assistant coaches, 10 performance medical staff people. And it's just, how do you facilitate information and make decisions and inform what's going on and kind of guide or inform the coach so the coach can guide you know this this process that is the tricky part and, and i think that's also not what people are trained in as well um that you know this a lot of this is kind of organizational leadership organizational development uh, organizational culture we'll take a quick break there Coaches, if you want your players to have the best, most fun and effective training tool available at their fingertips, now you can train on your own or motivate your players too with the Techni Football app. Created by Yael Averbush, professional and experienced national team player, Techni Football is used throughout the US and in over 45 countries. Players are guided through individual technical sessions with written and video instruction. They can track their progress and compete with others on leaderboards while coaches can monitor their players and encourage them to do so. Download the Techni Football app for a free trial. Go to technifootball.com where podcast listeners can get 10% off using the promo code MSC2019. So definitely, definitely recommend coaches check that out. Back to Dave. I went to... One of our sponsors, when I got up here a few weeks ago, was did an event you know, with a big corporation. Every They bring in a guest speaker. Yep. And the guest speaker was this big astrology person. Um, mm. And I thought, like, I sat for the whole thing. And, and obviously, it, it was way, way over something like my head. But yeah. I spent more time thinking about why a, a corporation, a business, is bringing in an astrologist. But... Of, you know, I've sussed it out after about 45 minutes. Like the, the CEO was trying to expose people to just different form of information or you know, learning outside your own sphere of, of where you work. And I thought yeah. it was absolute genius. And you know, should we be doing more of that as coaches? Should I be going to more S&C events? Because I had someone on here a while ago and I asked a similar question and, and he was pretty adamant on, no, stay, stay where you are. The the science must adapt to you but what's your thoughts on that you know how, how much more can i help myself and my team by being a bit more open-minded yeah i don't know if you have, well 
I see both points. I mean, what, what I would say is, to me, one of the biggest issues in coaching today is um, groupthink. I would say that if you look at, you know, I think MIT did some work, you know, MIT did some work on um, what they would call like cognitive diversity, right? So they looked at teams and higher performing teams in different industries. And, you know, what they found was that the most cognitively diverse groups of people became the best problem solvers. You know, and then when I go back and I look at how teams put together coaching staffs in different clubs, or if you look at, it's when you go and you look kind of on, on strength coaches, how, you know, strength coaches will hire assistants that are kind of just, just like them and see the world just like them. Um, I think it, it is, it is beneficial, like you're saying, to educate yourself in different topics, but I think it's even more important if you have the ability to manage your own staff is to really bring in people with like really diverse skill sets and, and views of the world. And again, like if you, if we go back and, you know, I, I always reference, you know, kind of Tony Strudwick's time at Manchester United. And I think if you really look at Tony Strudwick, for me, having been able to go and view all the you know different clubs and different periods of time, I still reference, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson, Mick Phelan, Rennie Mielenstein, Tony Strudwick, Manchester United, you know, like the early 2010 periods, right? And it was, if you look at it, it was a very cognitively diverse staff because the way Sir Alex Ferguson saw everything and Tony Strudwick and Ronnie Mielenstein and McPhailin, like they're very diverse. And I think, again, going back to the intuitive side, Sir Alex Ferguson had this way of replacing that first team coach every, you know, whatever, three, four, three, four years to bring in new ideas, to have someone that saw things a little bit differently. I don't know if he consciously did that or how conscious that was, but I think he had this intuitive feel for needing this cognitive diversity in the staff versus today some of the teams where like literally the same coaching staff goes from team to team to team to team. And I would have to think that it's really hard to battle this kind of group thing that can that kind of creep in. Yeah, it's, that's really interesting. I never thought of this before, but when I, I went to the Mourinho presentation a few years back and it was, he, he presented with five of his staff and these staff went everywhere with him. It was the, yeah. And I'm, you know, now obviously with hindsight and, and not knowing the information, it's easy to make assumptions. But yep. could could that have prevented him from selling certain ideas to players? Maybe. Very potentially. I mean, because I think the the athletes change as well. I mean, the the athletes today, especially with the millennial, you know, the, the Gen X, Gen Y, or sorry, the Gen Y and the Gen Z generations. I think every staff is challenged a little bit differently from year to year, and so. You know, again, if you don't have a cognitively diverse group that can actually change to how your players are changing, you know, because if we look at, Mourinho is a good example, if we look at his John, you know, the John Perry Chelsea versus the Pogba Manchester United, like that is a vastly different group of athletes to deal with from a generational standpoint. Mm -hmm. And trying the same staff using the same and, and obviously I'm not in there I don't know if they're using the same ideas or training ideas or ideas to reach the athletes but um, I know 100% having been in you know, MLS in the NBA what worked 10 years ago with athletes that doesn't work today mm -hmm. right because the players think differently are connected to the world differently view their peers differently run different sized contracts have more you know more at stake financially than ever like that just that that affects how you interact with them on a daily basis. 
it's interesting for staff then when you're hiring your staff how many people look at you know or am i going to get along with this person because we're going to spend so much time together yeah in reality we, we might be better looking at the opposite and thinking yeah am i going to have some good arguments with this person <laughs> yeah 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 and and you know is this person going to challenge me is this person going to tell me they think i might be wrong mm. is this person going to uh, be transparent with me is this person going to hold me accountable and then you do have to guide to make sure it's all that all of these things are done in the right way. Um, but again, like you, you, you do. I think transparency and accountability is you know kind of the two most important features of how how staffs interact with each other and how staffs interact with with athletes. And that's that sometimes is the the hardest thing to to keep within a staff. All right, last couple for you. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on this the decision making in basketball. And it's yeah. something that we are, as soccer coaches, and I'm, I'm sure you're very much aware, we're, we're complaining about the fact that we're not producing decision makers. So again, there's an argument of overcoaching and allowing them more freedom in training sessions. But I view basketball as the, their ability to make those decisions is a seriously, seriously high level in college yeah. as well as pro. But... When I look at basketball coaching, it's very much what we're saying is the wrong form of coaching today. Is yeah, yeah. What's your thoughts on that? I think that's been like that's that's been to me. You know, you talk about staying in your lane or knowing, you know, kind of knowing what uh, your limitations are. You know, for me, I tried to do first these first two years in the NBA. It's just kind of watch the way coaching happens. Um, and how much it's a very, very highly structured. Having said that, there's also kind of like tremendous player freedom. You know, this balance of it appears structured. And, and, and again, like I will say is like it is some of the most intensive, most structured coaching that I've seen in the NBA that, that I've ever seen before. Um, and it's unbelievably impressive how you know, how teams defend the NBA and how, you know, how you deal with pick and rolls and, you know, kind of it's how, you know, this flow between man and zone when you're switching players, when you stay with players and it's, it's so highly structured, uh, how you deal with, you know, kind of picking in screens and, uh, you know, the team agreeing beforehand, whether they're going to switch or not switch. And it's, uh, um, you know, and you're talking about more on the offensive side of the ball with the, the you know, the offensive um, play, and I, and I and I will say, like I'm still trying to get. I am by no means any sort of an expert. I'm still trying to get my the terminology that you know happens a lot is you know you have a 24 second shot clock and, and essentially things are very highly structured for potentially the first six to eight seconds of a shot clock, and then once you have some fairly defined movements um, between players. Um, if if you know you don't get the shot that you want, then you move what you call into like flow, what our coaches call flow. At which point, you just have to read the situation and react off the situation. Um, and it's like anything else, where the more the players play together, and it's funny, where like I, I've seen, you know, with our coach of he he will always try to keep the you know, first rotation of players together and the second rotation of players together for as many minutes as he possibly can um, because you do have to have train 
daily, those interaction guys just over and over and over. Um, and reading when someone's cutting off their, off their uh, marker to the basket. And um, I'm kind of switching between like basketball and soccer uh, terminology. But, um, you know, when you cut to the basket, how you free yourself from your defender. Meanwhile, have this, this whole pressure of a shot clock that you have to get a shot, shot off in a certain amount of time. So there's times late in the shot clock where it's just pure improvisation and trying to get an open shot. Um, but I almost think it flows from a very like highly structured offense in the beginning to something that's more pure improvisation at the end. And I can say is that, again, where our, where our guys come from, there's, and in our practice setting, the practice setting is more on continuing to, to refine these more highly structured areas. And then when they are with their individual coach, then you're looking at more kind of that late in the shot clock kind of improvisations. One of the things that about 10 years ago, I used to live close to Charlotte. So I used to go to yep. a few Bobcats, Hornets games, and I used to sit really close to the floor, not because I was big time, but because nobody, <laughs> nobody went to the games. Yeah, yeah. But, but the biggest thing I noticed was that there was no there was no talking on the court. So everybody knew almost that's what you're saying. They, they, they yep. knew teammates' movements. They almost instinctively knew where to go and when. Yeah. Yeah, and essentially what happens today is in any given time you might have three players that are trying to move off, um, move off of each other. One player with the ball, and then kind of two cutters, and then you've got you know two other guys that set up for a kind of open three point, the catch and shoot, you know, kind of three point shot. And it, basically, someone will improvise, and if they draw defenders, you always know that there's you know kind of open catch and shoot shooters um, which is why you know three-point shooting has gone up so much as well so there is a lot of spacing you know um even relative to soccer spacing is critical because the court's so small you know so actually maximizing the space with these large guys and being able to get open shots is so so critical so it's been a really interesting process seeing that and again like i i'm still a beginner and like and looking at it but you know it gives you a lot of of uh insight into kind of how you viewed coaching methodology prior to, you know, kind of coming to a different sport. With player power being what it is today, obviously the player power in, in these US sports is yep. real because of their contracts and and how much individual conversations are there, but you know, because there is such a big staff, is the head coach more of a facilitator like American football or is the head coach more does he run training? Does he do the individual meetings? Is it like a college coach? Like what kind of insight can you give us there? I think it's a, and that it's one of the things that I would almost take with me um, if I went back into football, soccer, is that the support that's around these players, and essentially what we, you know, we have our, um, you know, head coach. Like I said, I think four, four assistants plus a shooting coach, and then four young video guys that are t essentially young young assistant coaches in their 20s. Um, at the beginning of the year, every every player is assigned to a pair of assistant coach, video coach. They stay with them the whole year. Every practice, that that tandem works with the three to four players assigned to them for, for 20 minutes. So if a practice starts, if we have a practice that starts at 1030, the first... Uh, the first guy is on the floor at 8.50. 
to do a 20 minute technical session. Um, and then we can, then they just, you know, each coach works with three or four players for 20 minutes leading up to, uh, practice. Um, some of them might go after practice and, as, and, and then the coach, then the head coach runs pretty much two thirds of the, of the normal practice. Um, and that just gives so much individual time to those three to four guys where they, you know, each, each group, and, and it's all the positional groups, you know, so each center has a coach that an assistant coach that played professionally for 14 years, that young video coach that, you know, may also have played in that position. And then prior to games, it's the same thing, but it's a little bit shorter. So then the, prior to the games, we start about two hours before the games. These guys do 15 minute technical sessions, um, as an early part of their warm up, And so you really get this whole um, head coach really working on the offensive and defensive schemes and, you know, kind of teaching that, drilling that in during, you know, the practice sessions or walkthroughs. And then you get the assistant coach, video coach, and pay in a tandem working with these, you know, these individuals in 15 or 20 minute segments, really working on the, you know, the technical aspect of the game, which is a really, really intriguing way to do it. Just thinking there, whenever one of the things that frustrated me when I was a college coach was going in in the morning and every morning seeing, you know, you have to walk through the basketball gym and you yep. see three different players in there every day and you, you leave the office and again, those players are probably still in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, And as not to go down a road of opposed and unopposed training dialogue, but with that there, is there something that, you know, going into a different world, do you, do you look at soccer and think we're not getting enough out of our players individually? I mean, I, I will say that opposed versus unopposed technical training side of things. I mean, that's, uh, I, I think what I've learned actually is that it goes back to our athletes. And, and I, I do think there might be athletes that might benefit greatly from uh, unopposed technical training. And I've seen it. I mean, I've seen, and, you know, and I've asked our coaching staff at times and our coaching staff will say, oh, you know, if, if we can get one whole summer of unopposed three point shooting with, with our young guys, they'll go from a, you know, whatever, a 31% three point shooter to a 37% three point shooter. Um, and they believe, you know, very strongly in that. And, you know, they've seen players improve greatly with kind of unopposed skills, skills training like that. So I, I think, you know, it's kind of helped me view the opposed versus unopposed skills training kind of a little a little bit different lens because there is essentially I mean the game of basketball is about shooting. If you can't shoot then you can't really play in the NBA today. So I think it's it's still about and and I think there is a flow, like there are some things one of the reasons why you have this young video assistant kind of with you know paired with these guys during these shooting sessions is because you you do go from a unopposed to kind of more opposed type setting um, as the as the session goes on um, and then I think it's up to the assistant coaches to build um, exercises that become more game-like you know more pressured as the as these kind of little 20-minute sessions go on but in that transition period between the young players coming into the league or even players who maybe are development or the back end of yep. roster how much yep. You know, it's got to be vitally important for those players just to be getting attention from any coach, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think that's that's one of the strengths of the system is that you know if even if you're not playing, you're getting 20 minutes of one-on-one -on -one attention 
working at you know, the craft of your skills on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then you're going in and you're getting a conditioning and strength session with the strength staff as well. So, no matter who you are, and, and you know, and again, it goes back to you know these the athletes that may not be, you know, maybe more what you you call the back end of the roster. They're still obviously making a very good wage, and they still deserve a lot of attention. Um, because they are elite athletes in the NBA. So it's still up to us as, as coaches and performance staffs to give them a lot of attention to help them develop. And then last one for you. So if, yep. again, just thinking there, you've got, there's there's a lot of basketball in those environments that really, really intrigues me. There's the, the coaching relationship. There's the, the sports science kind of the embrace that they've had in recent years. I went to a thing a few year, uh, last year in, in San Francisco that was data analytics and the stuff that mm-hmm. they're doing in NBA is just miles ahead of soccer. Yeah. Um, if you had to, to bring in a group of coaches tomorrow or even you know recommend things for them to be studying and take from the NBA at this stage that basketball are ahead of us, what, where, where would you point them? Um, yeah, I would say the level of individualization that we can give the players. I mean, there's even little things like we actually have uh, for away games, we have three buses that go to the game um, because the, you know, the first, the first athlete is on the court doing his pregame session two hours and 15 minutes before the game. And the last guy goes on 40 minutes before the game. So, you know, kind of buses take athletes in like groups of four to five to the, to the arena. Um, so that everyone gets kind of what they need um, and everyone stays in their rhythm. Uh, so I think it's it's a system that understands that athletes have a real rhythm that you have to kind of honor and uh, they need the coaching that you have to honor. Uh, I think, you know, they do a great job of figuring out kind of what all 15 guys need to help them operate at a high level daily. And that means individual coaching, individual support, individual nutrition, individual kind of strength programming, and it's highly individualized on a daily basis. Um, yeah, from an analytic standpoint, I think how they're starting to view the game in terms of, you know, shooting, whether, you know, a guy is two feet away from you, four feet away from you, six feet away from you when you take the shot, you know, with the the positional data, what they can do. And, and that's definitely coming in, in, in football as well. Um, the positional data side is taken off, but, you know, we can actually see judge and, and also I think provide feedback to the players. It's very accepted to the players that, you know, when you, when you hold the ball more than two seconds, your shooting percentage drops from this to this. When you shoot, when someone's within three feet of you, your shooting percentage drop, drops from this to this. And that's feedback that can be provided to the players. Um, that the players then take on as well. Um, so there's a natural acceptance to some of the, uh, you know, the analysis provided to them. Um, and I think all the coaches, it, it's never, there's never a point with the coaching staff where they look at kind of data, and, you know, analytics around the game and say, ah, oh, well, you guys don't really understand the game. That's not how it actually went. Mm. Um, which you see, you know, obviously oftentimes in, in football. So, um, I think you, because it is this you know kind of tight in, interaction of of players on the court, the positional analysis, positional data does really help you see what guys are doing when they're under pressure, you know, and, and how and what really defines pressure and how successful are they shooting, you know, 
under pressure versus guys that need far less pressure to be successful shooters. And I think that's, uh, you know, we, we really, really have good kind of evidence of, you know, how people perform in different kind of states of pressure. So. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much to Dave for his time and his insight there. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. As I said at the beginning, I have so much respect for Dave for not only his work, but also how he communicates online and the message he continually promotes. He's always patient with people, even if they have opposing views, and he actually educates in a very respectful way on social media, and it's very, very difficult to do that, and does a lot of good stuff in the, in the coaching community. What stood out to me there was his point on groupthink and cognitive diversity, and obviously it's easy to see that you know, David's quite open-minded and aware and working at the top level of the NBA and the MLS for so long. You know, you have to have that type of skill set, an unbelievable skill set when it comes to adaptability and awareness and being flexible and being open-minded. But his advice to coaches on how we can do it, you know, two things that jumped out to me there, organizing our staffs, looking beyond similarities when we're connecting with coaches and then how we're actually consuming information online, which is a very, very, very important part of our everyday lives as coaches, what we're looking at, how we're receiving it. And again, just looking beyond our beliefs and looking beyond what we think is great and questioning it and being open to taking criticism on board or being open to people who view the game a different way. And I think that's the starting point for a coach. It's not just enough to say, you know, I'm open to new ideas. Yeah, I'll go to an NBA camp or I'll go to an NFL or NHL or whatever it is and I'll see what they do. Yeah, always open to do different things. You know, so many people say that, but so few actually are. So instead, I would ask if we're open enough in our everyday lives and those things like how we view our staff, how we talk to our staffs. Are we open in our everyday lives? Are we really maximizing time with our players? Are we doing everything possible to improve the structures and the processes and questioning our organization at all times, questioning our communication? And I think the reality is that there's always the possibility of doing more and there's always the possibility of getting better, but we've got to be aggressive in doing so and we've also got to be humble enough to look for it. And we don't have to go and take a trip to the other side of the world and we don't have to go and complain that we can't get into Real Madrid or Barcelona or Orlando Magic or whatever team it is. I think that there's so many solutions. You can you can look at businesses, you can look at podcasts. There's a hundred ways to improve your organization, your structures, the flow of communication. And we should be doing it. We should be doing it. So I took a lot from that there. I took a lot of inspiration, a lot of motivation to ask myself some, some questions after that there. So really, really enjoyed it and would love to hear your thoughts. At Gary Kernin on Twitter, at Gary Kernin on Instagram. Always appreciate you listening to the podcast. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.